you may not know this, but with WBEZ, you can catch up on the news live anytime you want with the WBEZ app or at 91.5 on your car radio. Whether you beam it or stream it, the news is on WBEZ. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of the Guinness World Records. Fastest time to roll an orange one mile with your nose is a record and a hotly contested one. Plus, a brief history of ice. Ice was so expensive that locals called it white gold. But first, it's our chance to sit back and unwind from the week that was with two excellent humans with us this week. We have the co-hosts of the Slate podcast, ICYMI, Rachel Hampton and Candace Lim. Hello, you two. Hey, Greta. Hi. Thanks for having us. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for coming on. Okay, so we recently started doing this thing called Burden or Delight. We've literally done it once before, but we just loved it so much that we have to do it again this week because the stories are too perfect for it. So this is a very simple premise. We are going to talk about three things that caught our attention this week, and you can tell us whether you think it's a burden or a delight. So we are going to start with the tactical bra that the army is working on. There was a story in the New Yorker about it recently. It's the latest effort by the army to make gear for combat situations that's actually designed for women's bodies. It does not shoot bullets or protect against them, but it is fire resistant. So what do you think? Burden or delight? Candace, let's start with you. I mean, I'll say it doesn't make me want to, like, go to the army. It doesn't improve <laughs> recruiting records. Let me say that. No. Um, no. I mean, as a woman, I came into this with many concerns. You know, first yeah. off, in the regular corporate environment, it is wild how many men are leading companies that make bras for women, but mm-hmm. not there's just not enough women making bras for women. So it mm-hmm. seems like the army's trying to like speak to that a little bit and be like, no, we like talk to all these soldiers and we know how to get there. Anyway, I want to see size inclusivity. I want to make mm-hmm. sure every woman has multiple Okay, multiple fittings, multiple bras, because, you know, there are some days where I'm like, I just want a really nice, like, light cami type of bra. Some days I'm like, no, I'm working out at the gym. I need like I need to be intense, but I need to also be protected. That's a big word for me and supported, especially if you're going to war, especially if you're going to war. And in the article, they mentioned something about how they focused on the material to make sure you could wash it a bunch of times. Which I do think is actually important. But the other part of me is like, I'm actually going to say it's a little bit of a burden. But that's because I kind of think wearing a bra in this modern age sometimes can be a burden. So that's where I'm speaking to. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. As someone who's really embraced athleisure over the last several Mm -hmm. years, I feel just the phrase tactical bra Mm -hmm. alone, I think, is a burden. What do you think, Rachel? Do y'all remember when we were younger and there were built-in bras on all of Mm -hmm. our camisoles? And we were like, what is the point of this? As an adult, I'm now like, oh, I I understand the the point of this. I love this. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like a tactical bra wouldn't give me that and also doesn't protect me from bullets. So (laughs) what really is the point? Yeah. I kind of also feel like I I love that it's fireproof, but if fire is that close there are Mm. bigger Mm. problems at hand (laughs) Mm -hmm. i feel perhaps Mm -hmm. um so i'm also anti-military so i'm just gonna say i'm just gonna say burden i'm just gonna say burden you know yeah yeah i'm with you okay so we all agree on that one that's good 
Um, Vox recently had a piece about the popularity of friends sharing their locations on their phones, which I think is a really interesting one because on one hand, this can be like a legit safety mechanism, right? I mean, I have a friend recently who went on a road trip across the country and it was really helpful to be able to know exactly where she was at any given moment. Uh, on the other hand, I also have a friend who recently told me about how a friend surprised her at a bar because her location sharing was on and they just like stopped in, which I think might be my worst nightmare. Mm. Oh my God. So what do y'all think is like, is location sharing a burden or a delight? Do y'all use it? I do. I do use it. I have a select group of friends that I use it with. Um, uh-huh. My roommate, which is helpful to know when she's on her way home, which helps you yeah. know if I need to put on pants. Useful. <laughs> uh my older brother and that's mostly because he watched criminal minds in a six month span and was like just let me know when you're leaving the country and i was like fine sure whatever (laughs) and then my other friend who i'm always late to meet and i feel like it's helpful for her to know where exactly i am Mm -hmm. so she knows just how much i'm lying when i say (laughs) i'm five minutes away um <laughs> I consider it a delight to be completely honest. I like watching my friends on the little map and seeing where they are. It's like a little sim game. I'm just like, look at my little non-player characters wandering around the areas they always wander around in. I love it. I think it's kind of delightful too. Candace, how much do you use it? All right. I'm coming in hot, guys. I'm burdened. Okay. I am so anti this so Hard badly. Burden. So here's the deal. Okay. Here's the deal. Okay. I value my privacy probably more than anything i'm an introvert so my whole thing Mm. is like the idea of anyone impeding on my peace unexpectedly is probably my worst nightmare yeah now i fully hear you guys about you know safety concerns we are women in this country and that is like a real thing that could help protect us however um i like i've had friends ask me like hey should we like location share and i know what they're really trying to say they're trying to say like um are you my best friend because i want to be best friends and like can we be best friends together and it's like okay okay, okay, okay." like we can we can be close friends on ig how about that how about that also (laughs) i'm gonna be very honest tonight i'm kind of a shady person (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of a shady person where like sometimes if I'm hanging out with someone that I know my other friend doesn't like, I won't tell Mm. them. Or if Mm. I'm on a date with someone that my friends absolutely hate and think is a red flag, I won't say. Mm -hmm. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm like, you know, taking a pottery class. Like, don't worry, guys. (laughs) Um, And so I guess the fear of being found out for who I am. Being busted is kind of a kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's a really interesting. Partly I was curious to ask you two about it because I'm 30. I think I'm like just older enough than you that like it's not a friendship tier thing for me mm. and my friends the way I think it is for people who are just like slightly younger. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much a friendship tier thing for me. There are only a select few people in my life, like I said, who have access to this. And it's the people who I basically never lie to. I was just mm. going to say, <laughs> yeah, that's what it has to be. Because otherwise, to Candace's point, you're going to get caught. Yes, yeah. it's very true. Or at least the lies that I tell are very easily disprovable. Like, <laughs> I'm five minutes away when I'm 30 minutes away, you know? <laughs> they're, the, they're the little white lies that are that are comfort for me and annoyances to those friends. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so lastly, I want to talk about the fallout boy 
rendition of the Billy Joel classic, We Didn't Start the Fire. It uh, just came out this week. It includes historical events between 1989 and 2023. I think we should take a listen. (laughs) You're welcome. It's just, okay, so uh, based on your reactions already, I'm pretty sure I can guess where y'all fall on the burden (laughs) versus delight (laughs) spectrum. I just want to highlight one section of lyrics, which is Oklahoma City Bomb, Kurt Cobain, Pokemon. (laughs) (laughs) I hate this so much. Lyricism. (laughs) Shakespeare is shaking in his grave. I hate this. (laughs) I have to say the reason why I know this song is because I had to memorize it in eighth grade history class because it was, you know, I mean, it's in more or less chronological order. It was like actually a mechanism through Mm. which you could learn Mm -hmm. about American history, but like Oklahoma city bomb, Kurt Cobain, Pokemon makes (laughs) no fucking sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, I actually so connect with you on that Greta because (laughs) Uh, when I was taking AP U.S. History, which shall now be called A-Push further A-push. going forward, yes. um, I had to memorize the Animaniacs president song, which is Amazing. just the presidents in order, right? And I had to do it for extra credit. So what I did, I burned that song on a CD. I put that into the Honda Civic Hybrid and I played yes. it every yes. single day to and from school. I feel so bad for my mom because on top of that, guess what? I was learning how to drive. So I would drive with a learner's permit, her body to school, play the song at least four times and like memorize it. Anyway, how much of it do you remember now? Oh, I Sing tried playing. No, I tried playing it back and I actually couldn't get past the first one. Or I would do that thing where like they would sing it first and be like, yeah, George Washington, Sam Adams, whatever. Um, that wasn't a president. Um, uh, I was going to say Sam Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so uh, my first instinct, burden, because, you know, Patrick Stump, Pete Wentz, let's speak. Let's speak to each other as friends here. Mm. (laughs) You need money? You broke? Because that is the only reason I can see you doing this. Right. Also, it was the LeBron James, Meghan Markle for me. Uh. That. (laughs) No. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, A lot of things happened, apparently, in the past 30 years that I've forgotten about. Uh, Uh I do find this helpful in that regard. I also don't understand how the pandemic didn't make its way into the lyrics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, COVID. The other one that I actually genuinely am really upset about is that, look, I understand they put Venus and Serena Williams in there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How about the Mm -hmm. slap? How about the slap that occurred in front of our eyes by Will Smith? So true. So true. There are just so many events in here where I'm just like, how is Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man on the same level? Again, so many syllables as the pandemic. What is going on here? Trump gets impeached twice. Polar bears got no ice. We got climate change. Thank God. So true, Kings. So true. Uh, I mean, <laughs> look, the other thing, too, is that with the Billy Joel original, 
My interpretation of that song was actually that he was trying to push off blame for his generation's ills and to tell the next generation, hey, it's not my fault. And so uh, (laughs) taking that concept to here, uh, I believe the Fallout Boys are kind of entering their 40s right now. They're like Gen Xers. They have kids Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I was like, oh, I... Uh, is this the same thing like are you trying to tell me hey all these things are not my fault bye like and i was just like no 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 Mm -mm, that's not how this works also the fact that they're out of order i think like removes the Mm -hmm. context from them which i think is i think it's very indicative of like how we look at information these days and i find that deeply problematic you know Mm, yeah like i don't want a random list out of order because like Captain Planet, Arab Spring, LA Riots, Rodney King, Deep Fakes, Earthquake. Like, what? What is happening? It's just, I mean, I don't know. And clearly Fallout Boy doesn't either. <laughs> okay, so a lot of burdens this time around. I guess before we go, what's something that y'all have found especially delightful this week? Uh, I wasn't going to say this, but now I have to. Unfortunately, Great. the first episode of the new season of The Bachelorette was unexpectedly oh. delightful. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I went in skeptical because let's be honest, that franchise has some issues and <laughs> has really been dealing with some issues over the past uh-huh. few years. And I expected the lead to be boring. I'm, I'm sorry to say, sorry to charity. But they got me. They hooked me wow. in. I'm, I'm ready to watch the whole season. Would okay. recommend. Would recommend. I'm happy for you, Rachel. Thank you. (laughs) What about you, Candace? So I am a big Lost Culturistas fan. That is a podcast hosted by Mm -hmm. SNL star Bowen Yang and Matt Rogers. And this week, something very big happened for the readers and the publicists. Those are their fans. Kelly Clarkson, (laughs) the singer, she went on the show. She went on their show. And Matt Rogers is a huge Kelly Clarkson fan. And uh, they actually recorded the interview on video in the iHeartMedia studio. So I would actually highly recommend watching the video version instead of the audio version. But that was definitely a moment of joy where, like, I felt joy watching someone else have their biggest life Mm. dreams accomplished. (sighs) And so for me, that has been bringing me a lot, a lot, a lot of joy. Also, the video is over an hour long. And I literally have never... (laughs) paid so much attention to something with that duration you know (laughs) well rachel candace thank you both so much for coming on this was delightful thank you so much greta thank you i'm gonna have harry potter twilight michael jackson die stuck in my head for the rest of the day In just a minute, we are going to talk with Imogen West Knights about her excellent piece in The Guardian all about the Guinness Book of World Records. You may not know this, but with WBEZ, you can catch up on the news live anytime you want with the WBEZ app or at 91.5 on your car radio. Whether you beam it or stream it, the news is on WBEZ. Our next guest recently wrote an epically amazing article for The Guardian all about Guinness World Records, which she calls a catalog of humanity's most batshit endeavors. The piece covers a lot of ground from the origin of the record book to its maybe too commercialized role now. It's also about a lot of really excellent weirdos and the idea that sometimes being the best isn't actually about having some innate talent 
or dedicating your entire life to one skill. It can also be about determination and practice and hope, which is actually really gorgeous. The piece is written by author Imogen West Knights, who you might remember we had on last year because of her amazing viral tweet about book plots. Imogen, welcome back to Nerdette. Hi, pleased to be here. I have to say, I think that what you have written is like my favorite sort of journalism where it's just like all weirdos. Like you talk to so many great characters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's my favorite kind of thing to write as well. I think if I have a kind of niche, it's weird goings on, weird people and what makes them tick. It's a really great beat. You're doing it. <laughs> Thank you. So what was it about record breaking that got you interested in writing about it? It was all kind of born out of this trip I made to Dublin, um, which is yeah somewhere I'd been quite a lot before, but I'd never done the sort of number one tourist thing, which is going to the Guinness Storehouse. So I decided to do it, and there was this room that wasn't open to the public, but the door was open, and I was just like, well, I'll just see what's behind this door, just out of interest. And I still don't really know what these books were doing in there, but there were like a few editions of Guinness World Records on a table in there, and I'd never thought about the connection between the brewery and the books before. Neither had I. That blew my mind when I read that. Right, and it feels ridiculous because obviously there's a connection, you know. How many reasons can there be? (laughs) Um, But I was looking through these books and thinking like, wow, I haven't really thought about these books since I had them as a kid and is it still around? What's it doing? How does it work? And then it turned out that it had actually changed quite a lot but that almost ridiculously it does still exist even in the internet age, these very physical analogue catalogues do come out every year. It's so interesting. I think partly because in this article you're you're capturing like the weirdness, the whimsy of it all, but you also are really examining sort of the root of it all too. I mean, you have this this sentence, you say, look deeply enough at a man attempting to break the record for most spoons on a human body or the woman seeking to become the oldest salsa dancer in the world and you can find yourself starting to believe that you're peering into humanity's soul. <laughs> well, I yeah, because I, th- I think... I think the sort of the initial buy-in for a piece about Guinness World Records is a slight freak show element of like, look at these <laughs> very unusual people doing very unusual things. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason I wanted to do it was to, to try and work out what it is that motivates people to do these superficially crazy things. You know, what does mm-hmm. it mean to them? What gap does it fill? How does it enhance their lives? What does any of this mean, I suppose, that people do these things? So, yeah, what's the origin story for the book? Yes. So the Guinness Book of Records, the first one was published in 1955. And the connection with the brewery is that the then managing director of the Guinness Brewery, Sir Hugh Beaver, was on a hunting trip in Wexford in Ireland. And he got in this argument with his hunting party about which was the fastest game bird. And, you know, they were arguing about this, arguing about this. And he apparently went on and thought about this for a further three years. (laughs) And then in 1954, (laughs) he realised, like, there was no way for us to resolve that. Wouldn't it be great if there was a way to resolve disputes like that? And also, would it not be great if we could distribute those books to Guinness pubs where people are often arguing about stuff after, like, eight pints? So they put the book together in conjunction with this pair of identical twins who ran, like, a fact and figures provision service in Fleet Street, which is London's newspaper pub at the time mm-hmm. um, and it was massively popular and then they started to sell it and realized that they would need to update it every year and it's not actually owned by Guinness the brewery anymore and hasn't been for maybe 25 years but that yeah originally it was it was very closely linked it's so I don't know it's just always interesting to reflect on 
time before the internet, really, just to put it really right? basically. But <laughs> it's just like the fact Wild. that you would just be haunted by a question for three years, you know? <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? And also, I know personally, I'm so bad for like breaking off a conversation to Google something on my phone. I can't yes, bear it. If I don't totally. know the answer, I have to know. So yeah, given the fact that we can now Google literally whatever we want, to what extent does like the editor-in-chief of Guinness think that is or isn't problematic when it comes to you know, continuing the tradition of the book. Yeah, and I, the more I spoke to people at the company, the more persuaded of that I was. I, f- I feel like there is a sort of value to having some sort of body that can be a bit of an authority on, you know, what is, you know, the furthest distance ever run by someone, you know, balancing an egg. Like, that, it sounds <laughs> ridiculous, but these things exist. And to have someone who's going to go out there and measure it and say, no, it's this, it happened at this time... I think there is some value to that, even if you can look up a lot of information on the internet, obviously, but to have a centralized, verified resource for these things, I think does still have some value. I was shocked to learn how big the company is, too. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, and it's global. Yeah. So they have something like, I think it's maybe 400. Yeah, that's crazy. It's a lot of people. And a lot of those people work on this sort of new side of the business. So not all of these people are going out and adjudicating records. But now, you know, if you're, I don't know, Colgate toothpaste, you might go to Guinness World Records and say, okay, what could we do? What record could we set as a company that would get us into the newspapers and generate a bit of buzz about toothpaste? And that might be relevant to what we do as a company. And then Guinness helps them pick one, can help with the sort of publicity of that event and signs off on all the kind of Guinness World Records branding that they're allowed to use it. And so that is where quite a lot of the money in the company comes from now that subsidizes the fact that the book obviously doesn't sell as well as it did in, or maybe not obviously, it doesn't sell as well as it did Mm. in like the early noughties, for instance. Mm -hmm. And the early noughties, that's amazing. And when you mentioned the, like the consultancy thing, I think you listed the fee for that starting is like 11,000 pounds. So like that is a pretty substantial, you know, I could see how that would really help bolster funds for them for sure. It does. It does. Do you guys not say the noughties? (laughs) (laughs) What do you say? We say, well, the aughts is what a lot of us say. The aughts. Yeah. The aughts. Wow. The noughties is amazing. We call them them the noughties and I love it. I'm I'm definitely going to take that because it's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you went back to that. That's amazing. So one thing I really loved about this piece too, is that you get into like the, how specifically, and I guess it makes sense, but I just hadn't thought about it. Like, of course there are rules for how they consider something to be, to become a record. Yes. Yeah. And they're pretty strict. So there's five criteria. It has to be standardizable, i.e. somebody in India can break it as easily as somebody in America. Um, It has to be verifiable, so like checkable by Guinness. It has to be measurable by whatever means, you know, if it's a distance or a volume or whatever. And Mm -hmm. it has to be breakable, so someone might be able to top it. And the last one is the one that I think goes against this narrative that like anything can be a record, which is Uh that it has to be um, a single superlative. So the example I give in the piece is like, you can have the tallest man, you can have the fastest marathon, but you can't have the fastest marathon by the tallest man. Do you know what I mean? Like it has to be just one. I love it. So what were some of the records that you were most surprised by as you reported this piece? I thought the one about Elon Musk holding the record for largest amount of money lost by one person was pretty pretty staggering. It is staggering. And that one's really interesting because I think that's a kind of hallmark of the new Guinness where it's like... um, 
they're very canny about publicity, you know, like mm. that is not a record that existed yet. But they saw that Elon Musk was in the news a lot and that his massive loss of money was a big news item. And so they found a way to create something that was a legitimate record, but that also guaranteed that Guinness's name was going to appear in the world media. So they're quite canny about that kind of thing. What other records surprised me? I think just some of the wackier ones, like the fastest time to roll an orange one mile with your nose is a record. Um, and a hotly contested one. You know, that's passed, that's changed hands quite a few times. It's so delightful. You talk about a couple of, I think, like super record breakers, people who just are constantly going through. And you talk to this one teacher, David Rush, who Mm. had this amazing quote. He said, not only can you get better at anything, but the belief you can get better at something dramatically improves your ability to do so. It's kind of beautiful. Yeah, I found I found talking to them pretty inspiring, I have to say, because it was this sense that being the best at something, yeah, is not is not an innate quality that people have. It's something that they decide to do and commit to being. And so much of it is about the commitment and belief and desire to be the best at something. Um, and some of them do take it pretty far in terms of the sort of mindfulness element of the whole thing. So mm-hmm. Ashrita Furman, who's had the most records of anybody in history, it's like over 700. He is an extremely spiritual person. He follows this um, spiritual teacher in India called Sri Chinmoy and says that the a the reason that he wanted to break a lot of records was to promote transcendental meditation but that is mm-hmm. also the way that he does it is by thinking himself into a mindset where he can just endure and can just take the pain take the suffering until he reaches his goal whatever that goal might be that's so fascinating so yeah what do you think do you find that there is like a central motivation i mean cuz it isn't like fame and fortune for these people, right? No, it isn't. And I think that's maybe what surprised me. It wasn't, none of them said that the reason that they wanted it was to have their name in the book or to be famous. And I kind of believe them because... They're not quitting their day jobs for this stuff either. No, no. And it's not, it's not a real kind of fame, you know, like most people have never heard of these people. It's not Uh celebrity status that you can get through doing this. I think either it's this sort of spiritual desire to push beyond what you might think of as a normal human boundary or it's it's a celebration of achievement in the abstract I think there's so many different things you might be the best at it's not just the ultimately kind of arbitrary things that say the Olympics celebrate you know if you actually boil it down you know what like javelin like throwing a stick really far Mm. like is that like what is why that and not something that might sound sillier but just because we haven't done it Mm. in a sort of um, professionalized way but I think, honestly, I think it's addictive. I think a lot of them talked about breaking one and being like, ooh, that felt nice. Maybe I'll break another one. Or when I, when I knew that I'd hit on what I wanted to be the kind of emotional heart of the piece was when I was, I bothered everybody of my acquaintance when I was writing this, like, oh, what do you remember from the Guinness Book of World Records, like, as a kid? Mm-hmm. And loads of people said the longest fingernails. Oh, and I think, yes. oh, yeah, right? Like that very iconic image of, you know, someone holding up their hands and it's sort of curling all the way down to the floor. Yes. And it turned out that the woman who currently holds that record is a woman called Diana Armstrong, who doesn't have the longest fingernails because she wanted to have the longest fingernails. She's got them because uh, she used to get her nails done every week with her daughter. And then her daughter died, age 16, Mm -hmm. and she vowed never to cut her nails again. And I just thought that's like, that's so meaningful and (laughs) <laughs> like so much more than just look at this freaky person with weird yeah. nails yeah. and behind so many of the records 
there you will find someone pursuing something that is really meaningful to them, even if it seems bizarre or pointless. I just love it so much. You kind of half considered trying to do it. Yeah, well, so when I went to the Guinness office for the first time in London, they, as I think is kind of typical when journalists express interest in this stuff, they say, oh, do you want to give, a, give it a go to try and break a record? And they picked one out from the database that I could just do then and there in the office. And the one they picked was standing on one leg, blindfolded, which doesn't take much prep. Everybody can give it a go if you've got two legs. It's a challenge, though. Well, yeah, so this is what surprised me as well, is that Craig Glenday, the editor of the book, he was like, the record stands at 32 minutes. And a small part of me was like, piece of piss, 32 minutes, that's not very long. Like, <laughs> but, I, you know, I only managed to get up to something like 30 seconds there in the office. But then when I was talking to Ashrita Furman about this, he said this is what he and the other super record breakers call a soft record, which means it is a record that hasn't yet been broken to a degree that would make it very difficult for most human beings. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you should give it a go. I think you could do that if you wanted to. And so when I came back from seeing him in New York, I was practicing standing on one leg blindfolded. And I did get kind of good, not like <laughs> up to half an hour, but I got up to like 12 minutes. Yeah, that's not bad. Which is not bad. And I was like, mm, maybe this is... But then I thought to check whether it had been broken since then and it had and then, then it was like an hour and seven minutes and I just thought like, like oh, fuck it. ultimately I don't, <laughs> I don't have the time for this. <laughs> but it's but it was it, it made me feel like the boundary was not having the time and the desire not being incapable of doing it yeah there's just something about it that I really love and I'm I think I'm with you like I don't have the time and desire either but but the fact that it is possible I just find very charming it is it's very alluring to kind of think you know I'm never going to run a Usain Bolt style 100 meters but there are lots of things that i that i could do to apparently a world-class standard if i chose to do them (laughs) (laughs) well imogen thank you so much for coming on it's such a pleasure to talk with you again thanks so much for having me back Let's rewind a couple hundred years to a summer day in the year 1800. Say you are in a very warm place. It is sweltering. Now, the next thing you might picture is holding an ice cold drink to help cool you down. But in most places, that would have been completely impossible because there was no ice. Unless you lived in a place where ice formed naturally in the wintertime, you didn't have access to it. You probably had never even seen it before. You know, if someone was going to have a drink, um, you know, they would have a glass of water that was essentially the temperature of sweat. Amy Brady has dedicated a whole book to ice, a thing I almost never think about, but use probably every single day. Her new book is called Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Ice has been used in all different types of cultures for many different reasons uh, throughout history all around the world. You know, in the place that we now call North America, there were already indigenous communities uh, using ice to build shelter and their own ice cellars to store food. Persians a thousand years ago were figuring out how to harness, you know, the properties of thermodynamics to make ice under the burning sun. So ice has always been around. What makes the American use of ice just so unique is that it really was launched because of an outrageous marketing plan. Amy says the dude who came up with that marketing plan was Frederick Tudor. He was a guy in Boston and it took him an entire decade to see any success, partly because people couldn't even fathom what ice could be used for. 
Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of like selling television sets in the 1950s, right? I mean, so few people bought television sets because there were no broadcasting stations. What do you even do with this? But there were no broadcast casting stations and uh, information on what to do with the TV because nobody was buying them. It's like this catch-22. And Tudor experienced the same thing with ice. You know, he had to teach people how to use it. He had to build the infrastructure for it. And then he had to get the ice to them so that they could buy it. At the time, of course, there were no ice machines. Ice had to be harvested, and it could be really dangerous. Teams of people had to go out onto frozen lakes and carve out 100-pound blocks of ice using super heavy ham saws. Then another group of people with horses had to heave them out. Eventually, that ice would make it into ice houses, but of course, only some people could actually afford that. Ice was deeply entwined with uh, class differences. Ice was a luxury of the wealthy uh, until Frederick Tudor brought it to Southern states. And even then, ice was so expensive that locals called it white gold. One of the things that blew my mind was that the first ever automated ice machine was made in the year 1840, like before the Civil War. The inventor was a doctor named John Gorey. When John Gorey announced his invention to the world, he thought he would be met with cries of gratitude and joy. And instead, he was met with cries of blasphemy. People saying, how dare him, a mere man, create ice? Only God can create ice. And he ultimately died with his reputation in tatters. Finally, with the help of delectables like ice cream and cocktails, ice became the daily mainstay that it is now. But of course, we can't talk about ice without also talking about climate change. Because as temperatures rise around the world, our love for ice is kind of making it all worse. Today, there are 110 million refrigerators in operation in the United States. Most of them have automated ice makers. And combined, they all spew about uh, 10% of all carbon emissions into the atmosphere. I don't know about you, but it is very difficult to picture Americans giving up ice cubes. That means we need a complete transformation of the cooling industry in order to deal with that impact on the climate. Experts are experimenting with magnets and uh, a material called plastic crystals that both mimic what liquid and gas refrigerants are doing in our current version of refrigerators. And yet they require much less energy and the materials themselves uh, are not emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So they're a much more environmentally friendly alternative. Amy has hope that someday all of our refrigerators could be pumping out ice with greener technology. Um, you know, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it and say, oh, everything's going to be fine. But I, I do take some comfort in knowing that there are very smart people who are taking the problem seriously and that there are already some solutions in motion. You know, if studying the history of ice has taught me anything is that Americans in particular are very quick to adapt to new technologies, um, especially, especially if there's a persuasive marketing plan involved. That's Amy Brady. Her new book is called Ice. that's it for this week thank you so much for listening along as always hope you enjoyed this episode 
Just so you know, July is right around the corner, which is completely crazy. Stay tuned for our author interview about our July book club pick coming up on Tuesday with Tanya James. And we're going to be announcing our winner for the Nerdette Cake Contest next Friday, July 7th. So keep an ear out for that as well. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. J.P. Swenson builds our newsletter and Brendan Banazak is our executive producer. We will see you on Tuesday. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.